Sybil side, the killing of one sibling, the list can go on. So there's a specific side. O'Neill shot his girlfriend as Miss Barron attempted to flee their home, and her final moments were captured on the 911 call. Not being a bystander, taking action. Battle so the ideal person, I guess? No, because everyone knows I'm a fucking asshole. <laughs> Racy Taylor, who was a black woman who was raped by six different men and watched all of her assailants walk free twice. Uh, I mean, it's a new season. Whatever you want to be. Yeah, we're going to Welcome back to Bros of Murder, season 666, because we took a little hiatus, because I had summer classes today. Uh, but yeah, we're back like back rolls, bitch. We are down one Kelly, but gang's still all here. And we're coming off of our live show in Texas. Battle, did you enjoy yourself? Uh, I was actually more happy that we got to meet each other. Why well, I didn't get to meet uh, Robert, but... He was there in spirit, yeah. Local style. We finally got to meet, share drinks. Yeah, we watched me get belligerent. Plenty of drinks. Kelly got drunk. <laughs> me and Kelly got really drunk at the uh, leaving the airport because <laughs> we went to the wrong hotel. Because there's two Westons in Dallas, so we went to the wrong hotel. Battles like, oh, I pick you up. So we we're just like, bet, just hit the bar, and we down like three or four old fashions. <laughs> It was all of our first time being in a Tesla. Yeah. That was fun. Ooh. Tesla was fun. We were into the Tesla. Yeah, no, probably we, we missed you though. You would have had a lot of fun there. At least with us. It was messed up. Even like, cause, you know, two weeks prior or whatever, I had to go start recording the album. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, even like sitting in the studio, I'm like, kind of fucked up that I'm not going to be at this <laughs> conference. It's like, I brought my friend, so we had a twin replacement. It's all right. That's awesome. So this episode talking about survivors and some really fucked up cases and how people survived them, like the aftermath. Uh, so gold star episode. <laughs> we're coming. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, coming back. Hundred percent. So battle. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I will. Before that, I just want to say, like, over the last like few weeks of not releasing any, has it been a few weeks? It, no, it's been like, what, a month and some change. A month? Okay, yeah, yeah, over the last, like, month and some change. We've done a lot behind the scenes. Yeah, I got a, I got like a BPL. Yeah. I, uh, did not get a BPL, because it's already... <laughs> I'm already a thick boy. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you built like a soda can, you short and thick. And if you're just listening to our podcast and you're not following us on instagram you probably didn't know that we attended our first true crime convention it was really awesome i think it was a pretty great time well i think it was awesome that we got to meet each other yeah <laughs> and i i and i felt like i learned a little the, bit the other podcast was oh yeah just fun. I, I think that was really cool to be able to meet other like content creator create content creators um and we were able to figure out really the direction that we want to go 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 
as a podcast. Yeah, doing that live show and kind of like seeing everyone's reaction to what we were saying was really good. People, it was a cool experience. Yeah, people like the format, so that was good. Thank I think you if I did it again, I would want to go to a bigger one versus I feel like this one was a little bit more just to intimate network with other podcasters. Yeah. Crime, so. con, Crime con 2023. Orlando, Robert. But enough with all that boring stuff, right? Let's get back into why everyone is here today. Woo woo. Throwing some sound effects right here. I'll put something there. You won't like it though. <laughs> <laughs> I just came back from the dead and they told me, you're still not that girl. <laughs> so if this is your first time joining us, I'm Battle, and I like to consider myself the group's statistics and history person because I... I was wondering where we are going to go with that. Exhausted. <laughs> I was too. <laughs> yeah, that's what I consider myself. I get kind of exhausted reading about crazy things all the time. All the time. So like, I like to talk about why people do things. So and today, way, what I, book are you reading right now? Because you hate crazy, crazy things. Berserk. It's a <laughs> eleven part like series of like six hundred to eight hundred pages each book. Then what's the content just, about? It's like a medieval kind of uh, anime thing. Medieval time. Murder. Murder. Sexual yes. <laughs> yes. All that stuff. Yeah. So enjoy that. <laughs> It's not as bad as because it's it's fiction, right? It's so fiction, yeah. It's not it real. Count. Well, the, some of the concepts are real. However, the story is not real. I'll preface it that way. So today, I will be talking about familicide and sexual assault. Not cases, like I said, but the topics of the two. So if you didn't hear one of our previous episodes where I've talked about different types of murder. Familicide is when a single family member murders other members of their family and they often kill every person and eventually themselves before they are ever apprehended. But that's not always the case. Other terms that are used synonymously with the term familicide is or are family annihilator, murder-suicide, and family members. Family murders. Excuse me. Excuse What's interesting? Thank you. What's interesting to know is that when it comes to familicide, it can often be broken down to each individual person. For example, matricide, the killing of one's mother, or patricide, the killing of one's father, sibilcide, the killing of one sibling. The list can go on. So there's a specific side which. The side is a Latin term for to kill. Oh, I didn't know that. You know? Yeah. I was reading about that. Infanticide, pesticide, herbicide. Yeah, it's to kill. But that list goes on for each member of one's family. But when it comes to familiacide, according to Professor Jack Levin, who is a professor of sociology and criminology at the Northeastern University of Boston, the, per- the profile of the person that commits these crimes are usually middle-aged men who are good providers and would be and would appear to be a dedicated husband and a devout father. Battle, so the ideal person, I guess. No, because everyone knows I'm a fucking asshole and I have an attitude all the time. So, 
I am dedicated and a devout father, but he's dedicated I'm, to being a piece of shit. I'm pretty sure my my neighbors probably think, man, this dude is always scowling when he's walking his child. What is wrong with him? And his child scowling too. Yeah, this is a this is a mad family. What's also interesting though about these types of crimes is that it is estimated to be committed by men 95% of the time. So women, you need to step your game up. I'm just kidding. Please don't cancel me. <laughs> so these men typically are the traditional or old school type of men where the man is supposed to provide for the family. So it's a very older way of thinking, a traditional like the women stay at home and cook and clean and blah, 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 blah. And the men is the provider. And what happens with these men is that, or what happens with this type of man is that he doesn't feel like he's doing a good enough job because of whatever he's not, what he thinks that he's not adequate in or what society thinks that men aren't adequate in. And so he starts to become disappointed with himself. But the other type of man that, that becomes enraged is when they have this idea that their partner is having an affair or not putting enough, enough work into the relationship. And so because of these different insecurities with themselves, because it's not the partner's fault or it's not the family's fault, it's the individual's fault. Before getting any type of self-help, they take it out on their family, starting with little things like mental abuse. So saying really messed up things and at the very final few moments, it's murder. So what's interesting to remember is that these types of killers either kill because they are mad or because they feel like they are able to save their save their family or themselves from a shitty situation. It's such a weird response. It's just like, oh, let's yeah. let just hit control or delete on this family. Well, it's kind of like for them, it's a savior complex to where it's like, oh, we don't have enough money for pay for bills or for food. And, and instead of having to go through the humility of struggling, I'm going to kill you all. That's pretty much how it is. Weak bitch behavior. And it's these two categories that a that was coined by a professor named Professor Neil Websdale, who is a professor at Northern Arizona University. He called these categories livid. Hold on, I forget how to say this word. These categories are called livid coercive. Oh, coercive. Yes. Coercive. Yeah, okay. The person that is killing because of anger and rage or civil reputable. The person that thinks that they can save them from a city, city, a shitty situation, or a savior complex, pretty much. Now, when speaking about a savior complex, that is that also can be said for those who commit sexual assault. Now, before I move on, I want to make it clear that sexual assault happens because of the perpetrator and not the victim. Let's just mm. throw that out there now. Thanks. It's the perpetrator. And a lot of times, especially with an older way or tr traditional, I use air quotes when I say that, this way of thinking is people like to blame victims versus blame the perpetrator. Yes. And according to Rutgers University, these rapists have a strong sense of entitlement and use power to control, power to control to commit sexual acts of violence. They also go on to say that most of these perpetrators adhere to a rigid traditional gender roles, 
that focus on the inequality of women, which is very clear because they, they're able to treat women or targeted victims with little or no regard or respect. And in their lifetime, one in five women and one in 33 men will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. And it is said that between 75 to 85% of victims know their perpetrator, as it's usually someone in their social group or family. Victims or survivors of sexual assault have a lot of issues afterwards, everything ranging from depression, flashbacks, post-traumatic stress disorder, and even living a lifetime without knowing who their perpetrator is. They never get apprehended. Most of the time, it's not easy to deal with what has happened to them. However, there are a lot of different types of support out there, which we will link in the show notes. One of the things I really want to touch on when it comes to sexual assault is how we can help prevent sexual assault from happening. For instance, just which can involve some type of humility on your side when out in public, we've all seen these people in like really weird situations that something just doesn't feel right. It's okay to say something and say, hey, something looks wrong. Or if you see a person that is in a weird position, just easily say, hey, I've been looking for you. Are you ready to go to insert whatever very public place so that way they feel comfortable also versus just doing nothing because that could help mitigate something terrible happening. But if you are wrong in this whole situation, I think a few moments of being humiliated and embarrassed is better than just being a bystander, which is something I like to talk about. Not being a bystander, taking action, whether it be notifying the proper authorities or intervening if it is safe for you to intervene. Yeah, intervening isn't just recording a video for TikTok. <laughs> yes, no, that is not intervening. I hate when people like try to like rescue somebody, but you're recording the whole time for Instagram. It's like, why you gotta show people that you did a good thing? You just can't do a good thing. So. Finally, this won't be your first trigger warning for this episode, but today's episode is going to touch on a couple things I've talked about so far, and Robert and Andre will be unpacking a brutal reality that people had to go through. So without further ado, here's our first case. Not further. Uh, Robert, do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Uh, I mean, it's a new season. Whatever you want to do. Yeah, you know what? We're going to start off right. Robert, you go first. (laughs) (laughs) oh man okay so just like battle said we are gonna have some content warnings at the start here um i'm gonna preface this uh that my case is very violent and it involves very young children uh so if you're sensitive to cases involving children i'd recommend skipping this one and it does involve familicide just like battle had spoken about So in the evening of March 18th, 2018, after an argument regarding religion, Ronnie O'Neill III began brutally assaulting his entire family. O'Neill shot his girlfriend, Kenyatta Barron, with a shotgun as Miss Barron attempted to flee their home. A neighbor testified that they saw O'Neill chase down Barron and bludgeon her to death with a shotgun outside their home. As she was fleeing, Kenyatta called 911, and her final moments were captured on the 911 call which would be a key piece of evidence in the trial against O'Neill later on. You can find this 911 call online, but I will tell you right now, it's a bad idea. Don't listen to it. It's not going to illuminate the case anymore to you. 
I listened to it because I'm like, yeah, I need to prepare for this episode and do all my research. Um, it didn't add any extra info for me. It was just really difficult to listen to. Yeah, I stray away uh, so, from those things. I don't ever watch any of like the live leaks or anything like that when it comes to different cases. Yeah, weird. I can watch out. those, but I can't listen. Like nine one one calls get me more because I just, I just well, hear and a lot of the nine one one. A lot of the nine one one calls on uh, this case uh, were recorded and played in court. <sighs> So you can find them on YouTube, which is just crazy to me. Um, but yeah, well, YouTube used to let you can, like have beheading videos. I remember, like yeah, they also gave wild. Yeah, in, in the nine one one call, you can literally hear like each hit. Oh god! Like in the courtroom, they're like counting the number of hits. Jesus Christ! Um, it's bad. So after O'Neill shot and bludgeoned his girlfriend to death, he returned to the house and used a hatchet to wound his nine or his nine year old daughter Renivier. He struck her in the neck and head before covering her in gasoline and setting her on fire. Renivier had cerebral palsy and was non-verbally autistic. He did all of these violent acts in front of his eight-year-old son, Ronnie O'Neill IV, who he then stabbed repeatedly in the stomach and then stood on his back with one foot as he covered him in gasoline and set him on fire. So because there were so many 911 calls that went out, the neighbors were calling 911 as soon as the gunshots went off. The neighbor who saw Ronnie O'Neill IV uh, beat Kenyatta to death called 911, and then both Ronnie O'Neill III and Kenyatta Barron called 911. The exact timeline of when those 911 calls went in is actually kind of a matter of dispute, because later on, Ronnie O'Neill IV would claim uh, that he was doing this in self-defense, and that Kenyatta Barron had a white demon in her. Oh, he crazy. Um, Yes. I will also say that I was able to find one news article that attempted to establish a motive, um, but I couldn't find any collaborating evidence for that, so I'm not going to touch it. Was, was it one of those really sketchy, um, <laughs> offhand news websites? It was just one of those things where it, it was a news article that had came out really close to when he was first arrested. No, I wouldn't so trust that. I, I just don't feel 100% confident, you know, saying it. So we're going to just leave it at a religious argument. So, again, shot his girlfriend and then killed his, tried to kill his two children. Due to the several 911 calls regarding the incident, first responders arrived to an extremely chaotic scene. Police, firefighters, and EMTs had to simultaneously take O'Neill into custody, fight a house fire, and provide life-saving medical care to Ronnie O'Neill IV. Ronnie was rushed to a nearby soccer field where he was medevaced to a hospital to begin emergency treatment. During the trial, firefighters and EMTs um, testified regarding their experience. One firefighter described rushing into the house and slipping in a large amount of blood before finding the body of Renivier, which was unrecognizable. The trial of Rania O'Neill III garnered international attention as O'Neill opted to represent himself in the case, um, which never double homicide is kind of the big league if you're a lawyer, let alone um, a, you know, a perpetrator, just a regular dude. And now, a short commercial break. So while he did represent himself, he did consult with three public defenders who did come to trial every day with him and, you know, would like whisper things in his ear and give him advice. Um, so videos of O'Neill's loud outbursts during his opening statements kind of went viral on social media. 
about like, oh, look at this guy who's, you know, representing himself as in his double murder trial and is popping off at the jury and not the judge. And he was reprimanded several times by the judge for loud outbursts. And this media attention only increased when it was revealed to the general public that Ronnie O'Neill IV had survived his injuries and would testify against his father. Because O'Neill was representing himself, that would mean that he would cross-examine his son, who was also his victim. And I want to take a moment... um, At at that stage, yes. You know, they couldn't... You, you have to line up all of your witnesses that you're going to bring to trial ahead of time. So when they knew that Ronnie O'Neill IV had survived his injuries and was willing to testify, um, everyone was aware of that. And then the news caught on to that. Mm. And then a bunch of people started watching because it became this kind of historic, strange happening that, you know, father and lawyer and murderer was going to be cross-examining son, victim, survivor, which is crazy. And you can also find that interaction online of um, the son being sworn in and then being cross-examined by his father. Um, And it's emotionally difficult, but there's nothing super graphic in it or anything like that. Um, the most graphic parts is he has a brief description of what happened. So you can find that if you're very interested. But I do want to kind of take a moment and stay on Ronnie O'Neill IV. And just because I can't imagine how difficult or how much courage that takes to do. I've never had to testify against someone, let alone my own family member, and let alone the person who personally victimized me. Ronnie O'Neill IV is incredible for being able to not only survive that, but to help put away his father. So over the course of the trial, O'Neill made many wild claims that were dismissed. Uh, He claimed that he killed Baron in self-defense, again, because she was possessed by a demon. Uh, He claimed that authorities had doctored evidence, like 911 calls, to make it appear as though he had struck Kenyatta more than he had. And he also claimed that police inflicted additional injuries onto her body to make him look worse. O'Neill's efforts to convince the jury were unsuccessful, and he was found guilty of one account of arson, two accounts of first-degree murder, and two accounts of aggravated child abuse. The jury recommended the death sentence, but eventually Ronnie O'Neill III was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences with an additional 60 years. Uh, In the judge's final statements to O'Neill, Judge Michelle Sisko stated, 19 years I've been in this job. I've seen human beings killed by the hands of others in every way imaginable. This is the worst case I have ever seen. I know I'll be haunted for the rest of my life. While Ronnie O'Neill IV was recovering from his injuries in the burn unit, uh, he had, had, I think it was like over 30% of his body had to get skin grafts because of the severity of his burns. Uh, There was a responding officer, Mike Blair, who started coming to visit him in the hospital. And initially this was to conduct interviews and do regular police business, um, but it became emotional support for Ronnie. And Ronnie started asking him to like stay after the interview and things like that, just to have someone with him. And after two failed foster home placements, Ronnie's caseworker reached out to the officer to see if there was anyone he knew who could foster him. The offer, the officer, 
his wife and five children offered up their home and took in Ronnie as a member of their family and started oh. fostering him. They would go on to adopt him on November 25th, 2019. So, you know, a little bit more than a year later. Uh, while Ronnie and his new family struggled with, obviously, his trauma and processing all of that, his injuries, the many, many hospital visits he had to continue to go to, um, they had a mantra that they would recite together during tough times, which is, I am safe, I am loved, I am part of this family, which I thought was incredibly sweet. Um, and it's hard to say that this is a happy ending, that he was able to find someone to take him in and love him to the degree that they do. Um, because, again, he still lost his sister, he lost his mother, and his father is in prison. I'm sure that is, you know, still difficult to this day. I'm sure the feelings he has about his father are very complicated. But I'm glad that, you know, he's in an environment that is going to be able to get him the resources he needs to process all of that. And I'm also sure that we're going to continue to see Ronnie O'Neill III in the news as he expressed no remorse and has alluded to um, trying to get appeals to the decision um, made by the court. And after his sentencing, he stated, I'm not sorry for something I didn't do, and I'm not sorry for the things I did do. He's just delusional, then. Yeah. Um, that's the case. I will say that if you want more details about it, they are absolutely out there, um, but they're very graphic. Um, and also a lot of the kind of commentary that I've seen about this case is even if Ronnie O'Neill III does get an appeal or tries to go back into the court um, regarding this case, uh, he's most likely gonna be in solitary confinement for his own safety as he did do have crimes against children and it was a very public yeah. uh, he, uh, court case. And also one of the children was severely disabled. Um, so it, there's like no chance he's going to be safe in uh, a large population unit. So he'll probably be in solitary confinement. Well, and with someone who already has clearly some severe health, mental health issues, those are only going to be exasperated. And his ability to, you know, represent himself is gonna go way out the window that's one i mean at least yeah there was like a, a silver lining i guess but shit i mean oh, there's really no help also in it, i i don't know i don't know if i mentioned it this took place in tampa bay florida at uh, riverview which is south tampa bay yeah that's that's dark and it only gets darker <laughs> with my case so now i'm covering a uh, racy taylor who was a black woman who was raped by six different men and watched all of her assailants walk free twice. So Racy Taylor was raped while leaving church on Sunday night on September 3rd, 1944. And it took 67 years for her to find justice while living most of her life in fear and retribution that she faced by just speaking out against her white assailants. Over a decade later, black women still need protection from sexual violence, as, you know, battle kind of outlined, despite the civil rights movement in which racist case actually played, like, a big part in. So now, uh, Taylor's case highlights the struggle that black women faced in the past when it came to coming out about sexual violence, from vigilante violence to firebombing and purposely fumbling the case to protect these white rapists 
that even admitted their own guilt. There were no ends that this woman went through just to find justice. And America still has a lot. We progressed a lot, but there's still a lot that we need to work on, especially knowing that for every black woman who reports a rape, at least 15 women don't report a rape. So collectively, we still need to do better. Raisa was born December 31st, 1919 in a rural Alabama area with her family who worked on a, a sharecropping farm. At 17, her mother died and she cared for her six siblings being like kind of the matriarch. Uh, she continued her work in sharecropping and by the age of 24, she had married, married a guy named Willie Gray Taylor and they had their young daughter, Josie Lee. Now on this night of the incident, Raisa was walking home from church with her friend, uh, Finney Daniel, and a car had drove up beside them on the road and started like heckling them and harassing them. In the car was Private Herbert Lovett of the U.S. Army and six other men who were armed. So now Herbert falsely accused uh, Taylor of cutting a boy named Tommy, and then that's when the seven men got out their cars at gunpoint and forced Taylor into the car. They drove her off to off a grove in the woods on the side of the road where they stripped, forcibly stripped her, made her lie on the ground, and threatened her by saying, act just like you do with your husband or I'll cut your damn throat. Uh, at that same time, she was begging for her life and just to return home to her infant child and her husband. Taylor's friend reported the kidnapping immediately to police and already knew who the first man was from just being around town and identified him as Hugh Wilson. Now, when uh, everyone got caught up, the people in the car actually admitted to doing all the crimes. They admitted to kidnapping her, they admitted to holding her at gunpoint, and they admitted to the assault. Other witnesses also pointed out who the drivers were and also identified the other six men in the vehicle. So everyone was aware of who did it, and the men caught also immediately confessed to all their crimes. But despite multiple eyewitnesses, despite the admission, the police didn't call any of the men back in to report the crime. All that happened was Wilson, the man driving, was fined $250, which is like 3000 bucks now, and no one did anything else. That's when so Rosa Parks <laughs> and Rosa Parks came to town and wasn't with the shit. So now the black community in that area was horrified by the police's behavior. The incident was reported to the uh, NAACP in Alabama and the Chicago Defender, which was a national African-American audience, printed a full front page piece titled Victim of White Rape. The profiling brought the ire to Rosa Parks, who was at the, at the time the NAACP's top investigator and advocate against sexual assault on black women. And she went out to lend a hand. Parks brought the matter back to Montgomery, where she began to rally support for Rosa with uh, a couple other head leaders and prominent members in the uh, community. Parks and her supporters established the Alabama Committee for Equal Justice for Taylor. With the backing from the National Labor Unions, and African-American organizations for women, the group gathered like a lot of support across the whole country for Rachel Taylor in this case. Now, by the spring of 1945, they had launched the strongest campaign for equal justice seen in decades, according to the Chicago Defender. Now, on 19, I mean, yeah, 1944, October 3rd to the 4th, the grand jury held a hearing with an all-white, all-white jurors, all-white male jurors, and however, none of the assailants were apprehended or brought into the case to like, you know, be cross-examined and called out. The only people there were witnesses, including Taylor's friends who were all black and her all black family. Uh, Taylor could not use the identities of the attackers by name. She was barred from saying that. And basically they just kind of made it the weird as though she really couldn't accurately tell the story of what happened. 
Honestly, like when I think of the biggest villains in history, like honestly, you know, like Nazis and normal stuff like that, but judges who upheld like these racist institutions and ignored their oath of office are, is way up there for me. Yep. Like you knew why what you were doing was so evil and so wrong, but you said, no, I have to maintain the racial power in this area and we will punish these people. Like you are the most like powerful person in your region and you chose to make that horrible like evil choice is it, and is it, also earlier you were talking about the NCAACP um, that is like one of the greatest litmus tests if people start acting weird if you mention NAACP they don't fucking know shit about the NAACP like it is an incredible organization that has done incredible work for so long yeah and they have conservative brain worms if they think it's a bad organization. Yeah, so now because the uh, because the sheriff never arranged an official police lineup, Taylor couldn't even identify her attackers in court or really talk to like really bring attention to the people who did this to her. So all that played into a factor. The jury threw out the case after only five minutes of deliberation. It might only be reopened if a second grand jury indicted someone. So they had to go through the whole process all over again. So now as a result of the ruling, Taylor and her family received a numerous amount of death threats and their home was actually firebombed. The threats and the violence got so bad that Taylor and her family had to move to her parents' home just to ease their fear and you know not continue to live under scrutiny. Rosa Parks was instrumental in establishing the Committee for Equal Justice for Rachel Taylor as a part of her efforts to bring justice to this woman. It immediately gained traction and with local chapters springing up all around the country, uh, they kind of helped revamp this, you know, dead-end case. Sheriff Gamble, the sheriff who was originally originally contacted about this case and had the whole, or chose not to do the whole lineup, he was interrogated again after the governor sparked after, after this committee sparked a revamp into the efforts of fighting justice for her. Gamble falsely stated that he did launch his own investigation immediately following the attack. He also said that he had detained all the individuals engaged in the rape two days after the assault happened. He basically was covering for everybody, covering his own ass, and then lied about doing an actual investigation. And he also called Taylor a whore and accused her of being a prostitute willingly had sex with all these six men. Not true. None of that true. None of that happened. Even the people who committed the crime said that it didn't happen. One main assailant named Joe Copper testified that he and the other rapists were out hunting for a black woman that night to attack. His version of the events actually matched Taylor's to a T because that's that's what happened. But despite this information, which included testimony from all the uh, assailants, the attorney general failed to convince court jurors that there was enough evidence to indict the seven suspects when presented with the case. The second all-white jury failed and refused to indict anyone, even with testimonies from several of the people who did it in front of them. So again, more powerful white people in positions of power choosing not to deal down justice to protect several white guys. 
for this cause. So now regardless of the outcome, the case was regarded as a significant victory for the civil rights movement because they were able to mobilize so many people across the country at once for one cause. Uh, it's quoted that the recent Taylor case brought the building blocks for the Montgomery bus boycott together decades before the boycott even happened. The Alabama leg legislation did not make any official apology to RASA until 2011. Basically, they clawed out everything that was wrong with the case and made a official apology to RASA and really helped ch change the landscape so victims can kind of get justice more better justice more better can get justice easier when it comes to assault i think it's something that like people don't realize about these cases unless they like or someone who like actively thinks about them is that these aren't done in private or secret this was extremely public yeah extremely. a huge portion of the country knew this was happening and saw it happening like there's moderates who will tell you like oh well there's like systems in place to protect you against this and you know, you just have to go through the right channels and you could get that judge disbarred or those people will go to prison. No, it took 60 years for six men who admitted to raping a woman to ever have the court, you know, apologize for mishandling the case. Like, Not even get justice, just to it, say, sorry, we, we fucked up because we're racist. <laughs> yeah, when you're in opposition to the greatest power in your area, traditional methods don't work. Like. You have to have global, or not global, uh, community organization. And, and they know about this also case. think too, though, but... No, go ahead. As, as generations change, so do ideas. And so it's taken a long time just to bring a lot of shitty things to light. I mean, look at the current affairs or the, the current situation of the United States. You know what I mean? The United States is in a really weird position right now when it comes to its past and a lot of things are being brought into light and a lot of people who don't look like us three are upset about that. mad about that. Yeah. I, you know I, I feel mean? like part of it is like they keep offensive and it's like, why? <laughs> you can just, you can say something's fucked up and it not be like a personal attack on you. Mm-hmm. Well, especially with, you know, how our culture is obsessed with, you know, true crime and like dark history and all those things. Like, why can't you analyze your own dark history? Yeah. Like, even if it's not directly your family line or whatever. Your community, your state. Why, why does the interest suddenly just dry up as soon as it's about your group of people? And not, not just know? dry up, but like they feel like they have to defend it with violence. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. That was the show. <laughs> uh, Gold Star episode, we made it all the way through. We did talk about some dark things. Uh, what do we have to plug? The Patreon, check out the Patreon. Uh, we're gonna start rolling out our merch at some point soon. So like figuring all that out. We got some concept stuff ready. Uh, check out the uh, live show episode when that drops. Join our Discord and social media. That'll all be in the links. We're gonna try to organize a movie night at some point too. I really want to show everyone the movie Detroit Dreams. It's very bad. It's a very bad Detroit Central movie. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie alone is spelled Detroit wrong three times. I counted. Oh no! And it's a Detroit-based movie. Yeah. Hey. 
But uh, anybody got anything to plug? Battle? Roberto? When are we releasing this? This will come out tomorrow. I'm doing this. I'm going to do And nothing to plug. No? The album? Nothing? No. Not yet. Okay, okay. Save it. But yeah, no, that was a show. Enjoy the music and uh, kisses from the homies. Time now for your latest weather forecast. Your time is up. It's play time. I got it hard. It's play time. No matter what. No matter what. No matter what. Let's play a game now. Take it to me. I'm having a rest. You know I'm coming for you. Uh, Cause I love the chase. Sucking on my lines while I'm catching the breath. You know I'm coming for you. You know I'm coming. Give it to me. Hi, I'll never resist. You know I have it in me. Uh, the edge and the heat. Bring it on. Yeah.